turn to the book of Habakkuk. In case you're wondering where that might be, if you can find the beginning of your New Testament and go back about 20 pages or so, you're going to run to a guy with three K's in his name, Habakkuk. There you go. That's where you want to be. All right. And while you're looking for Habakkuk, I would imagine that uh, probably soon, maybe in a week or two, some of you are going to start looking for your golf clubs. All right. Okay. Now, I don't want to get you thinking about golf too much here, but uh, I've got a kind of a unique situation in my life. I don't know really hardly anything about golf, okay? I took my kids to a Y class on golf, and, you know, and I kind of played around there. And that is about the extent of it. I, I done, I've done some miniature golfing, but I found out that that doesn't really count, okay? And so I, as far as golf goes, uh, the reason this is kind of unique is for years now, I've had the privilege of leading a Bible study for the Baylor golf team. And so here you've got a guy who knows nothing about golf, and he's working with all these golfers. And so I tell him always right up front, listen, I don't know anything about golf. Uh, I know a little bit about God and about working with guys. So uh, that's what we're going to focus on. God, okay, and the scriptures. And it's, you know, one of the things about being around the golf team, we do this every week, is that I see, I look at the coaches like the head coach, Greg Priest, or the assistant coach, Ryan Blagg, and I, and I look at these players and see how seriously they, they take this game and just how good they are. I mean, you think that ah, they're just out there enjoying themselves, just kind of hitting the ball, and there's no, nothing to it or anything like that. No, there is so much work that goes into it. These coaches are literally helping these players on every aspect of their stroke. And the reason that they do this, and they have time after time after time, they have them repeating the exact same thing. So they're not only working on developing muscle memory, but they're looking to correct anything that might be off, anything that's causing any sort of inefficiency And the reason that they do this is because when you play a golf game, it's impossible to be perfect. You're going to always find yourself in trouble, in difficulty. You're going to face challenges and trials. And so you've got to go back to a foundation so that you're going to play well. And so that's what they do. One of the tools that they have here, it's pretty cool. In fact, you actually see this picture of these guys uh, here to my right here. Uh, there's Ryan. This is in their indoor practice facility. What you see, you can see a little bit. They have these three different cameras, and they record every single aspect of their stroke. And so what they do is they, they go and they do their little swing, and then they break it down every millisecond. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, one of the guys on the team showed me 10 aspects of the stroke, and, and every single part where his hips were placed, uh, the position of the club and his hands, everything. And he said, you know, you see right here? This part is off. I need to fix this. And he, he had broke it down. Now, I know this is hard work because several years ago, uh, the guys thought, like, okay, listen, since you really don't know anything about golf, how about you actually do one of these recordings? And I, and I bet you're thinking, like, it would be really good to see that. And uh, actually, it was pathetic. I, I, I hardly even know how to hold the, the whole golf club. And it looked like a guy were, like, taking a croquet mallet and just, like, smashing the ball. And it was, it was really bad. And so they recorded it, and then everybody's laughing. And then it was hilarious. I mean, they had never seen anything so bad. And then they like, oh, they were really excited. So they took me trying to hit the golf ball, and then they took it next. And they, so they split the screen in half, and they had Tiger Woods doing the exact same thing. Okay? And so every split millisecond, you know, so Tiger's got the perfect, and I'm kind of like, you know, like this, you know? And it was hilarious. These guys are like down on their knees laughing. It was because my stroke is pathetic. Tiger Woods, he's got it down. And and the reason I'm telling you this is because there are a lot of parallels from learning how to play at a high level of golf and learning how to live well. 
And most of us, unless you have spent time with God and his word and you've got a godly influence or two, someone mentoring, discipling you, investing in you, you're probably going about life like a guy or a gal who's trying to play golf and you've never had a lesson in your life. And it probably looks pretty bad. And one of the big questions that we have to ask is, how in the world do you live by faith? Now, I want to tell you something. Learning how to walk by faith, it's a lifetime journey. It's not like, I'm going to tell you a few things, you're like, oh, good, got it, you're going to walk out of here, and it's just going to be perfect. No, it is a lifetime journey. And I'll just, uh, just tell you up front, I've got more failures than successes when it comes to walking by faith. Maybe you can relate. You know, uh, you're, you're in life and things happen that you don't like or disturb you or bother you or hurt you. Or then you face things that you don't understand and you're like, wow, God, how in the world is this happening? Why is this happening? Why are you letting this happen? Or why did you, why did you do this? And, and what happens is you start just feeling pretty down and discouraged. And, and next thing you know, your faith is transferred from God and your faith is now on your feelings, which might be pretty negative and are just kind of driving you down. Or you're like, well, but at least this is okay in my life. Or at least I got a little bit of money in the bank. Or at least this isn't changing in my life. And what happens is we get our eyes off of God and we start going back to a very familiar place. It's where we lived before we knew Christ. It's a place of like, I've got to figure this out on my own. Life seems rather random, rather chaotic. God seems to be disappointing me here. I'm hurt. I'm failing. And, and you can feel really empty inside. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah. We all do that. And what we desperately need is we need to learn how to live by faith. And until we can know for certain how to live by faith, let me tell you something. You and I will never sing songs in the night. Just like golf, life always has its trials and its troubles. It never works out like the way we idealize it. Oh, it'll just be perfect. Things will always just work out. It doesn't work that way. You're going to be in trouble. How in the world do you live by faith? Well, that is why the book of Habakkuk is so critical. If we're unfamiliar with what God is trying to teach us, as he's taught his people now for about 2,600 years through this book, we're going to be kind of like going after life like a person who's never had golf lessons and trying to hit a golf ball. So how do you and I live by faith? If you're at Habakkuk chapter 3, this is how you do it. Habakkuk chapter 3 is like the perfect shot. It's the way to do it. So like if Tiger Woods was the master at how to do it and I was the disaster and you got the comparative screen, you can see what needs to be correct by looking at the good example and about seeing how it is to be done. And you can start making corrections. That's how the word of God works. It's like a mirror. You look at it. It brings about changes. You see, whoa. I don't have this. This is missing in my, my life. That's what Habakkuk chapter 3 does. It brings about correction. It teaches us how to live by faith. And the first thing you need to know is if you're going to live by faith, you have to be learning how to pray for God's work. 
Look at Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1. It says, a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shiganoth. And you're like, whoa, what is that? Okay. Now, if you were on the top 40, okay, back then, this would have been on it. Okay. And what this is, is it's kind of, it's a musical, musical expression. It's, it's saying that this is to be sung with great emotion and it's highly poetic. Okay. And so this is Habakkuk's prayer. What you find in chapter 3 was likely a part of temple worship and temple services. And so this is a prayer that Habakkuk is praying. And if you and I were going to learn how to live by faith, we have to learn how to pray, how to talk to God. Your default setting is to go it alone. And you may even be a Christian, and you may have even walked with God for a lot of years, but if you have not learned how to continually approach God with your trials and your tribulations, as well as your triumphs, you can't walk and live by faith very well. And so what we have is Habakkuk's prayer. And he says, Lord, I have heard the report about you, and I fear. Habakkuk knew about God. When he talks about the report, he goes, I know how you have worked through the ages. And remember, just to review what we've learned in Habakkuk. The reason that Habakkuk is so distressed is because there's all this wickedness among his people and the people of Judah in the southern part of the kingdom of Israel. And he's like, God, you need to do something about it. How come you just don't do anything? It's like everybody's silent to you. Your law is like it's numb. No one responds to it. God, why don't you do something? And he says in chapter 1, verse 5, listen, Habakkuk, I'm at work. In fact, if I even told you what I'm going to do, you're not even going to believe it. I'm going to blow your mind. I am going to address this issue. In fact, I am presently at work. You know the Chaldeans, the Babylonians? Yeah, yeah, they're wicked and it's all get out. I'm bringing them in. And I'm going to use them to discipline my people. I am going to address sin. I am going to bring justice to bear because my people must learn to walk in holiness. And the whole idea of idolatry and walking away from me will not work because you cannot live that way. And so he's going to address it. When Habakkuk hears this, he's like, wow, God, man, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, they're far worse than we are. How could you use someone more wicked than us? What are you going to do? And so in chapter 2, he actually shows them. God says, listen, you're right. They're real wicked. I'm going to address their wickedness as well. And so that's what you find in chapter 2. God calls for silence at the end of it in chapter 2, verse 20. And so he's praying. He says, I've heard a report about you and I fear. You see, Habakkuk is recalling when God steps in and brings war, it's at a cosmic level. He's thinking of Egypt when the people of, of Israel are in bondage as slaves. God waged war against Pharaoh. And there are false gods. And he brought about these ten plagues. And God brought his people through the Red Sea. And he parted it and opened it up. But on, when the, the Egyptians followed, he just brought it all back down. And led to a catastrophic death among the Egyptians. Because God is fighting the war. It was God who led them through the Sinai Peninsula. It was God who revealed himself and Mount Sinai. It's God who opened up the Red Sea. He literally has the ability to part waters. And God's, and Habakkuk is saying, God, when you fight the wars, I, it causes me to fear. And so he says, O oh Lord, this is how you pray. Revive your work in the midst of the years. God, I want you to work. My people, my people 
are alienated from you. Would you do your work? This is just like how Moses prayed. Oh, Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. And in the midst of the years, make it known. And God, I know that you're going to bring great judgment upon my people. Notice how he's, what he prays at the end here. In wrath, remember mercy. God, I know that you're going to bring judgment. I know that the temple will fall. I know that my people will be taken in captivity because you've already revealed that. I know that there's going to be horrific losses. God, would you be merciful? Be merciful in the midst of your judgment. And I'll tell you, if you and I, if you and I are going to live by faith, we have to learn how to pray. That is the great need. People who take God seriously enough to actually intercede and pray. Little prayer leads to little faith, what leads to a lot of great complications. Habakkuk has learned, I will stand and watch and I will pray. Let me tell you something else. If you and I are going to literally, literally learn how to live by faith, not only do we need to be praying for God's work, Lord, that you would do the work, but we need to be developing a perspective of God's greatness. And I don't know where you're at, but it seems like most of the world kind of like totally dismisses God. If you, I don't know if you watch the national news. It's probably not even a good habit to do, okay? But did you notice that they never, God never gets any press. They never mention him. He must, it's as if he doesn't exist. He has no power. He's completely incompetent. Some people have run around with the theology that God's dead or he's absolutely unconcerned. You see, the problem is, is that the world suffers from a lack of understanding of the greatness of God. And it's not just the world. It's his people. You and I, a lot of our problems, it's because we don't think that God is all that great and all that powerful. And so what, what Habakkuk does here in his prayer is he starts rehearsing the greatness and the power of God. And he's going to do it in a very poetic fashion. Now, this is not how like you and I write. He's going to use great amounts of of symbolic language. It's going to be somewhat reminiscent of the Psalms. And what he's going to do is he's going to trace how God brought the people out of Egypt through the Sinai Peninsula and into the Promised Land. And he's going to highlight how God fought the war at a cosmic level. And he's doing this because he's rehearsing the greatness of God. If you want to walk by faith, you must believe in the greatness of God. Because think about it. If you don't pray very much and you don't and God's not really a big part of how you think of the equation of life, it likely has to do because you see God as too small or not overly relevant. Habakkuk says, he starts rehearsing the greatness of God. So beginning in verse 3, he says, God comes from Teman, which, has, which is, speaks of Edom, and on the Holy One from Mount Paran. This is speaking of Mount Sinai. So he's using some of, this, some of the terms that be familiar with Israel And he's saying, God is the one who comes. He is the one who comes from these places. And his splendor, verse 3, covers the heavens and the earth is full of his praise. God's glory is of no question in heaven. The angels continually praise. There is worship because there is nothing but that they they can do but worship. And those who see God and even creation itself worship, praise God because of his immensity and his power and his greatness. And so he's saying in verse 3, and the earth is full of his praise. Remember Habakkuk where he, chapter 2 where he says the earth is going to be covered with the glory of the Lord? Remember that in 2.14? Well, it's already starting with the people who praise him. 
And he says, his radiance is like the sunlight and his rays flashing from his hands. And there is the hiding of his power. God, when he like breaks forth, it's like the sun. He just starts flooding the earth. He is that immense and that powerful. And verse five, and before him goes pestilence. When God wages war, he does it on a cosmic fashion. He brings pestilence. In verse 5, he says, and plague, plague comes after him. He stood and surveyed the earth. He, near he's got, Habakkuk is writing about God. And he's like, he's standing and he's surveying the earth that he owns. You see, you survey property that you own. And he's looking it over because he is estimating what kind of power needs to be brought to bear to bring judgment on a wicked and a wayward people. And he looked and he startled the nations. And yes, the perpetual mountains were shattered. The ancient hills collapsed. His ways are everlasting. When God wars, mountains tremble. When God is the one who's fighting your battles, he does it at a significant universal level. Mountains quake. In fact, he says in verse 7, I saw the tents of Kishon under distress and the tents curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. This is between Egypt and Edom. These are these two people groups. And he's saying, when God started fighting the battles for his people as he brought them out of Egypt and people started hearing about God's power, they're like sitting in their little tents trembling. That's why their tents are trembling. I don't know if you've ever seen someone that is just utterly fearful. But they literally just start shaking. These people are in their tents and they're literally shaking because they are encountering and hearing about God's power. And not only that, but notice what else he's going to talk about here. He says, verse 8, Did the Lord rage against the rivers? Or was your anger against the rivers? Or was your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horses and on your chariots of salvation? Habakkuk goes, was God upset with the earth and the rivers and the Red Sea? Is that what was going on with the mountains? Was God mad at his creation? And the answer to that is no. He's not. Uh, what happens is he is bringing about his chariots of salvation. He's bringing about the rescue of his people. And when God does it, he uses the rivers, sea, the mountains. Verse 9, your bow was made bare. This Anytime bows are used, it's a reference of God of war and he says your bow was made bare and the rods of chastisement were sworn and you cleaved the earth with rivers literally he's saying it's you when you fight battles rivers change places the mountain look at verse 10 the mountain saw you and quaked the downpour of water swept by the deep uttered forth its voice it lifted high its hands verse 11 the sun and moon stood in their places. And here he's referencing an event that takes place when, when actually Joshua moves into the promised land. And you remember when they were actually fighting the Amorites at Gibeon? You can find this in Joshua chapter 10. So that there could be complete conquest, God actually held the sun and the moon in their place. Because it was God fighting the battles. Sometimes he used his people. Sometimes he simply did it without them. Sun and moon, verse 11, stood in their places. They went away at the light of your arrows, at the radiance of your gleaming spear. Verse 12, in indignation, you marched through the earth. In anger, you trampled the nations. And look at verse 13. I've actually underlined this because this is so cool. 
You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You did this, and you waged war on all those who refused to acknowledge you and worship you. You did this because you were bringing salvation for your people and salvation for your anointed. You're doing this because the promised one, the Christ, the anointed one, must come through the people of Israel. God is fulfilling his promises to Abraham. By this time, God has made promises to David that you're always going to have a king that will reign on your throne. Let me tell you, God brings about a judgment against the nations who are wicked and despise him, and he brings salvation for his people because he must bring his anointed from this line. And so he says in verse 13, not only did you bring salvation for, of your anointed, but you struck the head of the house of the evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. Now, this is pretty graphic language. But what he's saying is, God, God is Habakkuk is saying this about God. He's the one who actually will bring about destruction of the wicked. And notice what he says in verse 14. You pierced with his own spears the head of his throngs, or the head of the warriors, and they stormed in to scatter us. Their exultation was like these who devour the oppressed in secret. You are the one who's going to bring judgment upon those who seek to wage war against your people. What Habakkuk is reminding himself is that, yeah, the Babylonians are going to come in and they're going to wage war against us. And they're going to hurt us tremendously. But God is not finished with his people. And he is the one who is going to bring judgment. And so you see in verse 15, you trampled on the sea with your horses on the surge of many waters. Just like God brought about the end of the Egyptian army by closing that Red Sea upon them, so God is like riding his chariot, and he is the one who's going to bring judgment to bear and salvation for his people. Now, this is highly poetic. You might be going like, whoa, never heard anything like that. Let me tell you, the reason that this might be rather unfamiliar is because we've kind of settled into patterns where we want God in a box. And Habakkuk writes this prayer out to help you understand that God is far greater than you and I have ever imagined. He is powerful. He is mighty. If you and I are going to live by faith, you know what has to happen? We have to see God is great. We have to see him as all-powerful. He's all-powerful over this state, over our country, over our world, and over our universe. Because he is, he's God. There is nothing that he can't do. He is presently at work. And when the time of judgment is to come, if you want to read about it, you simply have to look at the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. You're going to see a glimpse of the greatness of his future power displayed. And so Habakkuk is rehearsing all the greatness of God. He's thinking about his power and his might. And he's doing this because what it's doing is fortifying his soul for what he must face. So just to review, you and I are going to live by faith. We've got to learn how to pray. We must learn how to talk with God in prayer. We have to have our minds and our hearts expanded to start grasping the greatness of God. This week, don't just plow through life 
I want you to look at different ways, whether you look at the sky or the stars, the sun, the moon, the power of just what's even taking place in a leaf. And I want your heart to thrill about the greatness and the grandeur of God, because when that happens, our faith is built. And if you want to live by faith, you also, you need to be growing in faith in God and his will. It is not a one-time occurrence. It's not like, I just believed in Jesus one day at the church and that's it. You keep trusting, you keep growing in your faith in God and his will. And one of the greatest confessions of faith found anywhere in the Bible are in these final verses. This is like, this is such an important few verses here. Because we're going to see Habakkuk and how he's going to respond to the great difficulties in his life. Verse 16, he says, I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble, because I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us. He's saying, God, I understand, and it's killing me. I am literally, it's like his nerves are becoming unrattled, unraveled. He is rattled at the core of his soul. He's shaking. His inward parts are trembling. His lips are quivering. He goes, I understand what's going to happen. You are going to bring judgment. And he's like literally shaking. He's fearful. He's like, I understand what you're going to do, but I want you to see what faith looks like in the darkest of nights. Do you want to see what does it look like to sing songs in the night when you feel like life is completely unraveled, when there seemingly is no hope, whether you're facing your personal tragedy, some sort of illness, something sort of just thing that is just wrenching your soul, something that is affecting you deeply, your family, your perhaps your work. Look at this, verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food. Literally saying, if there is simply no food, like our agricultural system fails. And notice what else he says, verse 17. Though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls. There's no sheep, there's no flocks, there's no cows, there is nothing to eat. Olives, they, they had olives, olive oil like every single meal. There's no crops, there's no food. There's, even if all of this should go away, this is the key. Look at verse 18. Yet I will exalt in the Lord. Literally, he uses his personal name, Yahweh. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. He says, even if it all fails, I'm going to find my joy in you. And friends, that's the secret. You and I, we're trying to find our joy in stuff, things, that it's all kind of going our way. The stock market's on the rise. I've, I made a lot of money last year. Uh, things are kind of well with my kids. Things seem to be clipping along. If you and I are always in this pattern of identifying our security on the things of this life or who's liking us or like how popular we are on Instagram or something crazy like that, You are always going to be disappointed. You and I will have to go through times where we're completely stripped down, where it's just you and God, because that is the only way that you and I learn 
that God is more than enough, that his grace is sufficient. And let me tell you, there's two ways of learning things, the hard way or the easy way. The easy way is you read the scriptures and you see it like, yes, I am going to trust and find my identity, security, purpose, peace in God and God alone. But most of us, including yours truly, have to learn this the hard way. Strip down, break down, trembling, where it becomes just simply you and God. And he says, I will exalt in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. You don't just sit there like, I don't feel like worshiping God. You don't base your life on feelings. You actually direct your heart to to worship and rejoice in the Lord. Some of you came today, and I bet you didn't feel like going to church and worshiping God today. You are to be commended because you're not living life on feelings. But what you do is you like, God, I may not feel it. In fact, right now I'm trembling. Life is hard and difficult, but I will worship you because it is in worshiping God that we actually are living by faith. And the greater we see God, the more we worship. And this theme is carried throughout the scripture. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, you know, I know you've read about this a lot, but he says in in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, he says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again, guess what? It's no trouble for me, and it's a safeguard for you. It keeps you from going over the emotional cliff. I know you've got difficulties. I know you're despairing. Some of you are discouraged. A few of you are depressed. Rejoice in the Lord. Think of his goodness and his greatness and pray. Just like the psalmist, bless the Lord, O my soul. Direct your soul to worship God. And then he says in verse 19, this is, this is awesome. The Lord God is my strength, and he has made my feet like hind's feet, and he makes me walk on my high places. All right, quick. Who knows what a hind is? Any hunters among us? Okay, just a few. Are there, are there hunting season over except for access deer? I know that, right? Do you guys know, do you guys know what hind? It, it's actually a female deer. And you're like, what, Grant, why are you so, like, pumped up and fired up about verse 19? He's made my feet like hind's feet? Like, I don't think I really want to, like, deer feet. Man, I look like one of those weird creatures on, what is, what is that, the Chronicles of Narnia guy? Is that what I'm supposed to look like here? No, let me, let me tell you what's going on here. He has made my feet like deer's feet, and he makes me walk on high places. Deer have these hooves, and it's precisely because they have these hooves that they can actually climb up pretty much any kind of terrain, any sort of rock. They're stable. You and I, we're falling down, we're slipping, but not deer. Because of the shape of their hooves, they can go and travel over any, any, any terrain, whether it's tough, it's, they're just little small little outcrops. They don't need climbing equipment. Got to get over this hill. They literally just kind of bound up. Their feet are made to go over the difficult terrain. You and I, not so much. Look at it again in verse 19. The Lord God is my strength. He's the one that allows me to stand above my trials. And how has he done this? He has made my feet like deer's feet. He does it. He actually changes us. He transforms us. He makes us like himself in that we now have the ability to trust him 
as we go through difficulty. We see God is in control. We have a power and a strength that comes from him that allows us to live by faith. He's made my feet like deer's feet. He's the one who trains us and transforms us because, friends, even though I know that some of you are discouraged, you and I were made to travel on the high places. We are made to rejoice in the midst of difficulty. We are made to have hope in the midst of hardship. We are designed by God to live by faith that overcomes our fears. How does that happen? God does it as we look to him. And friends, that is the essence of faith. Remember Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4? Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. If you're proud, you're trusting in your own resources, in your own abilities, that doesn't cut it with God. Your soul, your heart's not right. But when you are trusting in God and God alone, he gives you the faith to climb the hills and the mountains. He allows you to live strong in the midst of great difficulty. There's a great British expositor who since passed away years ago by the name of G. Campbell Morgan. And I, I love this quote. Listen to this. Our joy is in proportion to our trust. Our joy is in proportion to our trust. And our trust is in proportion to our knowledge of God. You see, you have increased trust. It actually leads to increased joy. Or if you don't have a lot of joy in your life, I can actually tell you, you're probably not trusting God to a real high level. And he also says, increased knowledge of God leads to what? Increased trust. You, the reason why we spend time in the scripture, that I challenge you to daily open the book, the Bible, is because that is how you increase in the knowledge of God. That leads to increased trust. Increased trust leads to increased joy. Because faith, it's like a fire, and you feed it with the word of God and his presence, and your faith grows. And it's a faith like this that allows us to go beyond our situation. So friends, it's kind of like this. You and I, we might be trembling, but we're trusting. Life isn't all about smiles, right? There are people here, and you've got tears in your eyes because you have heartache in your soul. Hold on to Jesus. Cling to him by faith. I find we might be trembling, but we are trusting. That's what Habakkuk's doing. Verse 16, he's trembling. Verses 18 and 19, though, despite it all, he's trusting. You just keep your hope fixed upon God. And what will happen, friends, is that the sovereign Lord will become your strength. Life isn't a series of just random chaotic events. God is working out his perfect plan. His grace is sufficient He's in control, and he wants us simply to trust him, rejoice in him, worship him. And the reason Habakkuk is so radically changed is because he's got a radically strong view of who God is. And so, friends, that's what we do. We, too, can be transformed 
like Habakkuk. We too, when we stand on the mountain of God, we can sing songs in the night. I mean, don't you love it? We've got folks in our church and you see Christians and they're going through all these hardships and difficulties. It's even hard to even think about. And yet there, there's a joy. There's a peace. There's a settledness about him. You know where that comes from? It comes from God who makes your feet like deer feet so that you can ascend to the high places. And it's only when we stand on the mountain of God that we're going to be able to sing the songs in the night. Some of you are familiar with Stephen Curtis Chapman. He's a Christian musician, wrote a lot of songs, pretty famous guy. He wrote this quote. And he, he's not just like, sometimes we think like, oh, you know, a guy like that, probably lots of money, no problems, right? Not so much. In fact, I think that the more God seems to use you in the world to encourage others, the harder it gets and the more trials you go. For instance, his, his wife has, has had chronic depression issues where they are almost debilitating. And he said this quote, I have learned that we can control where we allow things that we can't understand to fall. They either fall between us and God and we become angry or we allow these things to fall outside of us and press us in closer to God. Where is your trouble landing? You know, several years after he, he said this in an interview, his five-year-old adopted daughter was killed as she was accidentally run over by one of their sons. Where is that kind of trauma, trial, and tribulation? Is it going to drive you and God apart? Is it going to drive you together? It drives you together when you and I live by faith. See, when the Lord is my strength, he trains me to walk by faith through the trials I face. You know, remember when in verse 13 where he says about the anointed one and salvation for your people? He's promised and he's delivered. 2,000 years ago, Jesus, the Messiah, Christ. You know, that, that word literally means anointed one has come. And Jesus said, you know, in the world you're going to have tribulation. But take courage. I have overcome the world. Put your faith in me. I know that you are sinful and you are wayward. You have a tendency to do life on your own. I have actually resolved the issue of sin because I have become its payment. Are you troubled and are you hurt? Go to the anointed one. Put your trust and faith in him. And so Habakkuk ends this psalm by saying, what is written is for the choir director and it's on my stringed instruments. This is to be the song of Israel and the song of of his people. That God is our strength and those who are righteous, you and I live by faith. And friends, if we will simply walk with God daily by putting our faith in him, you and I, we can sing songs in the night. Let's pray. Lord, this is an amazing passage of scripture. I know, Lord, that it's oftentimes untouched by your people but you have had it opened that our hearts might be stirred and we might see what faith in you really looks like. And so, Father, in the midst of the chaos and the hurt, discouragement, perhaps even the successes that we have faced, Lord, help us to know you as our all-sufficiency, to trust you in all things. 
God, would you increase our faith? You have spoken these things so that in you we may have peace. And so we do. For those who have never trusted your son, we come and plead his mercy and cast ourselves before him. And we believe, believe in Christ. And for those of us who know him, God, would you increase our faith? Would you allow us to sing songs in the night as we simply trust in you? May you be worshipped and glorified in lives that are holding on to you when it seems like everything is falling all apart around us. We pray and would ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.